Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Hear now the word of God written for you and for me today. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Amen. Thus far the reading of his holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in Christ Jesus, God's design and the work of building his church must be done with great precision and care. Ministers must be mindful of who they work for and who they work with in the building of his church. For we belong to the Lord and are serving him on his errand. We work together with God, carrying out his business for the furthering of his glory in submission to him and the mission that Christ has given us, which is the salvation and the nurture of his precious lambs. And now we know well that, that we are Christ's beloved sheep, but Paul also describes the church as God's field. His building. We are his harvest, and we must be thankful that God oversees his workers in their work with a keen and a watchful eye as they tend to what is his. And we must be thankful for God's abundant grace in the Apostle Paul that God would take great care in how his church is built. For God worked in and through him to be a wise master builder. And by divine grace, Paul planted the seed and he laid the foundation, the only sure foundation that can be laid, and that being Jesus Christ. And it's essential that the church is built on this rock, which is Christ, and stands on him as our rock. For if it's on any other foundation, it will fail. But Paul also taught us the essential nature of the care that is taken by ministers who build on the foundation. Paul laid the smooth foundation, the solid, the secure foundation that is Christ. And Apollos built the walls, so to speak, in Corinth. And just as Paul was wise in how he laid the foundation, so too Apollos had to be wise and careful in how he constructed the building. The right materials in Christian ministry must be used. And there's good reason for this, right? For we are God's building. We are God's temple. And as the Corinthians needed to be reminded of this reality, we need to be mindful of the same. Marvelously, whereas God is pleased to have his special presence and, and was pleased to have his special presence, uh, in the people with his people in times past, in the physical tabernacle and temple, God now lives in his people by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 
And as God's church, excuse me, as the church is God's temple, being mindful of this should clearly affect the church's focus on the maintenance of the purity and unity of the church. Which means dealing squarely with the wisdom of the world that may be affecting it. And this is where Paul goes yet again this morning. So let's consider Paul's words regarding our becoming fools to become wise in verse 18. The foolish wisdom of the world in verses 19 and 20. And all things being ours in verses 21 through 23. And how does Paul begin in verse 18a? He says, let no one deceive himself. Let's stop there for a moment. Paul here is, is reinforcing and expanding his previous teaching on the wisdom of this age, contrasted with the wisdom of God. Remember his words back in chapter 1, if you want to look at verses 18 through 21, where he says there, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You know, it's probably all too true that when the question of where is the wise was asked amongst, amongst the Corinthian saints, there were plenty of hands that went up to say, I'm one of them, right? I'm wise. But Paul also said in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, as he further developed his points here, he says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. All of a sudden those hands go down. Oh, no, wait a minute. Nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, he says. In verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Again, we, we see the grand purpose of this hidden wisdom of God. It was to accomplish our redemption. But we also see and remember that the hidden wisdom of God must be revealed by the Holy Spirit. And so now knowing that the Holy Spirit dwells in and amongst his church, as the temple of God, which is a temple that must not be defiled, Paul taught us. There is all the more reason to exhort the saints to self-examination and to warn them against self-deception. You know, we are in great danger of deceiving ourselves when we have a high view of man's wisdom. For such wisdom exalts Self. The wisdom of the world thrives on the self-reliant pursuit of power and authority by worldly means and worldly gain. 
And in many ways, such wisdom consists in our exalting ourselves over others instead of serving them. It has no place in the church. The wisdom of this world has no place in the church in its many forms, in any of its forms, and any of its tentacles that try to get their way in. Sadly, churches are too often built and destroyed by self-seeking individuals who want more power and authority. In the big picture, we deceive ourselves if we think that we can be successful in God's eyes if we conduct ourselves in the church with worldly wisdom. If that is our guide, we are completely wrong. It will fall. It will fail. And so if this is the diagnosis that Paul, so to speak, as a doctor gives us, what's the remedy? What does he say the remedy is for self-deception? Look at 18b. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. My friends, Paul knew that there were some in the congregation who did indeed seem to be wise in this age and according to its wisdom. And this was all the more reason for Paul to press them that there is a paradigm shift that must happen in the hearts and lives of believers. The spiritual scales have to be removed. The eyes have to be opened. Hearts have to be humbled by the Spirit of God to realize that what I say, and, and if what I say and what I do looks good and is acceptable or is even applauded in the eyes of the world, I'm truly being unsuccessful in being wise for Christ. Paul is saying that if anyone is in that place, he must be aware of his own ignorance and lament it. He needs to repent and to turn from it. He must distrust his own understanding and not lean on it. For to have a high opinion of our wisdom is but to flatter ourselves. The way to true wisdom is to become something that we haven't been, that we can't be on our own. But that we've been freed to be in accordance with the word and by Christ. We must be willing to be taught of God and become fools to the world. The person who resigns his own understanding that he may follow the instruction of God is truly in the way of everlasting wisdom. And that's the hard thing in many ways, isn't it? To become fools to the world. Because none of us wants to be criticized. None of us wants to be shamed by others. None of us wants to be ridiculed or persecuted. And yet that's what we're called to. This is what we're called to do and that we're given strength to do, divine spiritual strength to do because we are living for Christ. And he was ridiculed, he was shamed, and so will we as his followers. But that is what being a disciple that cost of discipleship is 
something that we are glad to bear. That cost of discipleship is something that we are glad to bear. Supernaturally so, because it's not in our own strength. We would be the ones that would raise the hands like Corinth and say, hey, I'm wise. And I know a lot of people in this town that think the same. Paul says, they should look at you and say, you're a fool for following Christ. You're a fool for believing this about Christ and Him crucified and what He has done. And so we need to say, I'm glad to be a fool. I'm glad to be a fool according to that definition and for that reason. You know, we also need to keep in mind that sometimes we can be so blind in our world, in our own worldliness and we need each other's help in identifying and even abandoning the foolish things that we've latched onto. Sometimes we're blind to see it. But the Lord uses brothers and sisters to help us to identify and not only to identify but to walk the path that needs to be walked. David wisely said in Psalm 25, verses 8 through 11, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is grace. That is the voice of a humble sinner. That is the voice of a humble heart. One who realizes that he has been wise in his own eyes way too often. And says, Lord, forgive me. For I know my sin is great. But he also knows what's true of God. For God teaches. He teaches sinners his way. He teaches sinners as we're walking in his way. He guides us. He, he helps us. He, he brings our brothers and sisters along to help us, to, to lift us up and to, to pick us up when we fall and stumble, to encourage us as they too are walking in the same path. Paul also said to, Roman in, to the church in Rome in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't try to make your life look like if anybody were to examine it and say, you know what, I can't really tell the difference. It's really hard to see. No. Be fools for Christ. Where it's crystal clear to see the difference. It's crystal clear to see what our foundation is on. Is it on Christ? Or is it in the world? And so Paul summarizes again the great need for Christians to abandon the applause of the world and to seek after that which is godly, and that is done with good reason. Look at what he says in verse 19 and 20. 
He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. My friends, the clear statement of God through Paul is the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. If anybody in the church would rise up and say to the contrary, and that the wisdom of this world is accepted by God. He supports this. This is what he wants us to think. This is how he wants us to live. Paul says, no. You have let this in and it has taken root in your heart and mind. It has changed your lens and your understanding of the will of God. Become the fool to become wise, he says. Because it's truly foolishness with God, the ways of this world. And in case anyone would doubt Paul and think that he just came up with this on his own or otherwise think that he has no foundation for what he is saying or teaching, notice how Paul goes on to ground what he said with Scripture. And in doing so, he quotes Job and the psalmist in Psalm 94.11. Let's consider first Job's words, which come from Job 5.13 for a moment, along with the context of verse 12. In verse 12, he says, He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes, quick, comes quickly upon them. My friends, the wise of this world are crafty in their own hearts. And Job is saying here that God catches them in their own net. He entangles them in their own traps. God isn't for them, supporting them, God is saying, no, he's catching them in their sin. Because this is not what God says the church should be doing. He is against those who are crafty and wise in their own eyes. And how could God do this? Again, let's look at Psalm 94 that Paul quotes in its context. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Understand, you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? You who planted the ear shall, excuse me, he who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nation, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, but they are futile. My friends, God has eyes wide open, full knowledge, full insight to the conditions and the condition of the mind and the heart of men and the supposedly wise. He who teaches man knowledge knows that the thoughts and the motivations of sinful, wise men and women in their own eyes are vain and empty. They have no lasting godly value, for there's no godly value in it at all. Their wisdom and the things of it, though notice, will pass away. They will pass away. 
Beloved, God knows to the smallest detail of how foolish man's wisdom is in comparison with his own. Especially in the gospel and word and the folly of men that, that bears fruit in threatening the peace of the church or its unity or its purity. And these were the things that we see were rampant in Corinth. And because this is true, Paul goes on to say in verse 21, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether of Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things are yours. See that the boasting in men is what had been going on unchecked in Corinth for far too long. And this boasting was part of the fuel for the divisions that formed in the church. And yet Paul's message was, stop boasting in men. Stop the sectarianism that's so nasty among you. Knock it off. Stop the quarreling and the fighting among yourselves. Become fools so that you can become wise. Get the covetousness out as you think you want something that someone else has and you don't. And why? Paul says, see what the truth is. See reality for what God declares it to be. See how God has established it in his church. All things are yours. Similar to Paul's guiding question of, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Here Paul says, Know this, and may this blessing bear fruit in your lives. All things are yours. And what does Paul mean when he says this? For the covetous, quarreling heart would easily and quickly jump up and respond, Fantastic! All things are mine? That's great. I want this, and I want this, and I'll take that, and I'll take this. But no. The Corinthians needed to, and we need to think about this as a body. If we belong to Christ, then it's folly to boast in one thing when all belong to us in Christ. Paul gave Apollos and Paul and Cephas for the church's benefit. Not to create divisions among them. Look at verse 23. He said, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. I mean, here is the great climax of the passage, beloved. Here's the pinnacle. Paul wanted the people to say, I belong to Christ. Not, I belong to Paul. We need to see that because we have been so richly blessed by God, because we are in Christ and because we belong to him, this must calm and douse any rising heat among us. Or even in our own hearts. Envy and jealousy have no place in our lives and must have no place in Christ's church. So we are Christ. But what does it mean, and what does he mean when he says that and Christ is God's? Paul is pointing us to Christ as mediator. Christ is mediator. Jesus was appointed by God, commissioned by his Father, to bear the office of mediator. 
Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He was commissioned and he was chosen to bear that office to purchase and earn salvation for his people. Christ belongs to his Father in the sense that he came down low. Not to do his own will, but to do the will of his Father who sent him. And he has purchased a glorious inheritance for us through his life, his death, and resurrection. Praise the Lord. Remember Paul's words to Rome in Romans 8, 7, uh, 8 16, and 17. Where he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. My friends, Paul's point to those in Rome is also his point to Corinth. We are wonderfully children of God and joint heirs with Christ. We have truly been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus our Lord. All is ours in him. So what are we doing? Messing with anything else. And letting all this crowd into the church. What was Corinth thinking? I'll leave you with this. As Paul gives vital lessons to the corporate body, we at Heritage, we need to heed these lessons as well. We need to see and highly value the church being the temple of God and all that that means in its purity, in its beauty, in its wonder as the bride of Christ where he is worshipped and the Holy Spirit dwells. For it is a pure place where the Spirit dwells. We need to have that truth firm up and strengthen our guard from anything that would seek to defile us, especially the tentacles of the world's wisdom. We need to guard against envy and jealousy and covetousness and any divisions that would seek to take root among us. If and when we find evidence of their presence or their attempts to enter, we need to hack the roots and be humble to step down from our high-handed thrones of self. And repent and be willing to become fools in the world's eyes in order to be truly wise in God's eyes. And then in such godly wisdom, we need to walk in the way of Christ having his mind. And why? Because the reality that we are Christ and all things are ours in him means something. It is significant. It is greatly and grandly significant. It impacts us and it shapes us in all the right ways. For quarreling and fighting have no place in the body of Christ. And knowing that because of what Jesus has done for us and our union with him, knowing that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him, knowing that all things are ours in him, doesn't fuel greed but quite the opposite. It sprays a huge fire hose on the fires that undergird fighting and division. 
It brings peace where there was damage. It restores purity and unity to relationships in the body that were tainted and broken. Knowing and living according to the truth that all things are ours also protects and maintains that which is already safe and sound in the church. truths not only need to convict and bring change and repentance where that's needed, but it also shores up. It guards and protects what is right and good and what needs to be furthered and what needs to grow in a God-fearing body. And so may we be fools in all the right ways, my friends. May we be and remain fools for Christ, following him, walking in his truth, love, and grace together. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray.